You know, now that a high percentage of the population in Israel have been vaccinated, have you felt a difference? What has changed since then? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's too early to call, but I think from an individual perspective, there is a little bit more of a relaxed feeling. If before that uh, you had to, to wear masks uh, all of the time, uh, but then we're talking about Israelis, which are not all the time following the rules. <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually, the, uh, there is the general population, there are a few sectors which are defying the rules big time. But anyway, let's talk about the general population who more or less kind of put the mask and uh, you know, behaved as expected. Now it's a little bit, a little bit more relaxed. And uh, so I think that's from an individual perspective. Uh, from the organizational perspective, in Israel, the problem is that there is no professional task force uh, that is managing the situation. It's practically managed by the government. And there is the Corona cabinet. Uh, headed by the uh, by the prime minister and a few ministers, and it is bad as it sounds, <laughs> because it's a political organization. It's not a professional task force, and they sit for hours and they shout one on each other and uh, pressure here and a pressure there. And specific sectors who are represented by some politicians are pushing this direction and then to the other directions and decisions are taken overnight without any preparation. There is no structured plan. So it's very difficult for the individual to get organized. I mean, okay, so uh, are they opening the school? Nobody knows. They're supposed to open on Sunday, but then it's only Saturday night we'll know if this is indeed the formal decision which was taken. Well, this is kind of one anecdote, so it's really, poorly managed. Uh, I'm sorry to say so, but it's really very poorly managed. Hi, I'm Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. My guest for this episode is Amir Eldad, a globally recognized entrepreneurial ecosystem builder. Throughout the first part of his career, Amir worked in a range of digital electronics manufacturer in Europe and then in the U.S., and his work is aligned with the growth of digital electronics, computer network products, and network management solutions worldwide. Some of the startups that um, Amir has worked for has grown exponentially and were acquired for bigger and larger organizations throughout the decades since the 80s up until the 2000s when he was working already in Boston. And that's what led Amir to have a very interesting role at Mass Challenge. He was a director of global partnerships. And Mass Challenge, for those of you who are not familiar, is a global zero equity startup accelerator founded in Boston, but now has um, uh, other um, touch points around the world. 
And just to give you an idea of the size of this accelerator, as of 2019, it had accelerated more than 1,900 startups and raised more than 4.3 billion US dollars in funding, which then generated 2.5 billion dollars in revenue. So it's a very well-known accelerator, and he had a very interesting role right from the beginning, the foundation of Mass Challenge, back in 2009 when it was founded. Um, when I met Amir before COVID, he was definitely um, in a jet-setting lifestyle and traveling the world, visiting his clients. And that's how we met when he was down here in Melbourne, um, having conversations with state government or um, my former employer, Monash University, for example. But now... Because of COVID, he has bunkered down in his home country of Israel. And that's when I decided to give him a call, as I was really curious to know if he could give us an insight on what it looks like to have most of your country's population already vaccinated against COVID-19. Israel has really outperformed other countries and rolled out the Pfizer vaccine in a very fast and efficient fashion. In the beginning of our conversation, he describes how Israel's history and culture has contributed for this efficiency in the rollout of the vaccine and made it such a great priority and also how the foundations in the country, especially the healthcare structure, has really supported the efficient rollout and the logistical rollout of the vaccination. However, my chat with Amir left me still questioning what the vaccination uh, will actually do to the world and what it, the world will look like after we have most of our population um vaccinated against COVID-19. It, it seems like there could be more that we could do and more that Israel could do. And it hasn't really yet hit the ground uh, in Israel, the policies and the forward thinking and strategies that I thought I would hear from Amir. But that's not to say it's not being uh, developed as we speak, because as we know, in this sort of crisis, things are changing every single day, if not every minute. It would also be a wasted opportunity if I didn't take the opportunity of having this chat with Amir to discuss the concept of entrepreneurial ecosystem, which is Amir's expertise and how potentially adopting entrepreneurial ecosystem or an entrepreneurial mindset could be a great strategy that can help communities work towards the reconstruction of economies and businesses following the pandemic and work more efficiently to get ourselves out of future crises when we encounter those. So I hope you enjoy our conversation and I will touch base with you towards the end as well. It has to be the fancy microphone, not the dodgy one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how, how is my voice quality, okay? 
your voice quality is great. And you, okay. you have this very awesome Australian ear, what are they called? Ear pods? No, they're not called. Uh, no, it's actually a true wireless uh, headset or headphones or whatever it is. It's, you uh -huh. know, it's like AirPods, uh, but it has the capability of uh, uh, augmented hearing. Yes. Uh, so it's a, let's say it's an uh, AirPods on steroids <laughs> with augment, augmented hearing capabilities. I, oh, my husband, unfortunately, well, well, I actually quite like this. He gave me these Jabra ones. But okay. they are not like yours. I wanted yours. I should have asked him for the specific brand. And I, I, when you emailed me to say I'm going to use mine and you mentioned something about it not being a startup, it was a scale-up? Yeah, yeah. What's the yeah, difference I mean, the, between the, a startup and a scale-up? Explain to me. Yeah, well, it's uh, probably kind of a matter of stage. So okay. uh, a startup... As uh, I think uh, Steve Blank says, is an organization in a continuous search for a repeatable and sustainable business model. Uh, that's one of the, I think, great definitions of a startup. Um, and this is typically an early stage, like if I measure it in financing rounds, a kind of seed stage, round A, and so forth. Now, Nuhira, uh, I don't know their numbers because they are a private company, but they are selling uh, in Australia, in the US, in other countries. Uh, they have uh, multiple versions of the product. It's a combination of a hardware product and, uh, uh, and uh, an application. Everything is working fine, actually great. So uh, it's a scale up, which means that now their job is not to find a repeatable business model, but how to grow and mm -hmm. uh, how to uh, manage the, the right business model, how to <clears throat> find the right profitability, uh, uh, distribution and sales channels, uh, everything that's uh, connected and related to scaling up. Yes. I'm going to add a link to the episode show notes in case anybody is interested, um, anybody listening is interested in this very nice um, headset that you have because it's, quite good it has very good sound uh, microphone yeah. and if it amplifies the hearing as you get older that's what you want i definitely <laughs> need it <laughs> how have you been okay i've been uh, you know uh it's, it's a diff difficult and interesting situation so at the micro level you know myself friends family everything is great Uh, but uh, I think it's probably uh, for forever, you know, since I remember myself, I am more concerned about the macro uh, issues than the micro issues. <laughs> and, and the reason is, you know, I, I tend to think that I have control over the micro issues. And I typically think that I don't have control of the macro issues. So, you know, why get worried? Because you cannot influence it too much. But now it's so devastating not not actually not so much even the pandemic but the pandemic and the way it's being managed uh, in many countries including Israel um, and they connected with the issues of uh, to some extent the fate of democracy as we know it <laughs> uh, this is a little bit worrisome but other than that you know I keep smiling I'm doing very well uh, family friends are fine our work is great uh, and uh, yeah everything is great so let's create two different tables here um, 
on what's working in Israel and what's not working in Israel in terms of managing the pandemic. So people looking okay. from outside in and seeing how the rollover of the vaccines in Israel is going gangbusters, really, um, it is making a lot of people very jealous. So um, we, we look at Israel, and the reason why I wanted to speak to you today is because I wanted to see how the very quick and speedy rollover of the vaccines can um, boost confidence in the market, boost um, a sense of normality or coming back to normal in the market so that when it starts rolling out in other countries like Australia, um, we may look at Israel now and say, oh, okay, we should expect to see this because that's what we're seeing in Israel. But you're also saying yeah. some of it is not so rosy. So I want you to tell me the pros and cons of what's going on. Okay. Uh, I can, I'm not sure about pros and cons, but definitely I can provide a good insight. But it's an opinionated insight, so <laughs> take okay. it with a, uh, with a grain of salt. Uh, so, yes, from a quantitative perspective, Israel is definitely number one in the world in the percentage of the population which is getting vaccinated. So Israel is, I think, about nine million people. And uh, I just, just uh, checked this morning, uh, probably about uh, uh, 5 million people are already vaccinated. I mean, the first shot and about uh, maybe three and a half to four million in the second shot, but it's just a matter of time. So altogether, people who are vaccinated uh, are 5 million people out of a population of 9 million. But then this population includes a lot of children under the age of 16, which at this stage are not targeted. Uh, for vaccination. So uh, the uh, eligible, uh, or I would say the population over the age of 16, the percentage of uh, being vaccinated, I estimate it, uh, I mean, there are ex uh, exact numbers, but it's probably about 80 to 85% of the population, okay. which is great any way you look at it. Now, why is this happening? Uh, and here comes my, my opinionated perspective, but I think it's not actually uh, quite objective. Uh, first one is that uh, uh, the, the government and the prime minister uh, did a great job of uh, just making sure that Israel has enough vaccine. And uh, uh, I'm not saying they stole, I mean, they had great agreement, but the, the attitude is uh, beg, steal, borrow, whatever, do whatever you have to do uh, in order to make sure you have the vaccine. So they uh, put it as first priority. Uh, I'm not hinting at all that uh, something was illegal, but uh, the attitude of just making sure it's happening and they signed the right agreement with Pfizer and Moderna and uh, probably others. Uh, was trying to make an in-house uh, vaccine in Israel, uh, which probably will not take place. So again, it was number one priority. And that's, I think, the first reason why it's uh, so, why Israel is leading. The second thing, which actually supported the first uh, reason, is the survival mode of Israel. And that's deep in the culture. Mm -hmm. So uh, Israel is an, uh, has been all the time an isolated country. Uh, with uh, all the borders are just with enemies. Not, there is no single border with friends. I mean, that has changed over the time with uh, uh, the peace treaty with uh, Egypt and Jordan. Uh, but still, there's a lot of hostile and, uh, you know, uh, 
entities around the border. So, and in the culture, it's a it's a sense of survival, um, and a sense of survival implies that uh, you do what you have to do in order to survive. So now, of course, when the pandemic hit, uh, it's easy to see that this is an issue of survival. And uh, um, so I think this is the second reason which contributed to our government putting it in the first priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third reason is, even though politicians uh, uh, tend to take credit for everything they can, uh, this is actually not related to the existing government. And this relates to the uh, national uh, health uh, law, uh, which was created in Israel, I think, about probably 20 years ago. And uh, Israel has an outstanding uh, public health uh, structure. Uh, there are uh, a few uh, in, the, in the U.S. language, I would probably call them HMO. So, uh, uh, and there are probably four or five HMOs uh, that cover 98% of the population in Israel. And uh, unlike the U.S., where you have to be employed in order to get health insurance, otherwise you have to pay a few thousands per month for a family, uh, in Israel, everyone uh, is insured and it's progressive according to your salary. So if you are unemployed, uh, you pay practically nominal fees uh, uh, to get uh, health insurance. In addition to that, uh, Israel is quite centralized in terms of uh, the medical record. Uh, so um, uh, it's very easy uh, today, with uh, whether on the HMO website or very good uh, mobile applications, uh, just to get access to everything. And um, it's a bit kind of uh, on the on the account of privacy, but not to a great extent. But uh, the, the the medical record is available, uh, and everything is existing over there. Now, for the moment, uh, it was uh, I mean the government and everyone was aware that we have we're going to have a supply of vaccines. Uh, then those HMOs uh, got organized in extremely quick uh, time frame and made sure that uh, they have the logistic and the structure and the capability uh, to roll up uh, a national uh, vaccine operation. And this has been going extremely well, uh, not related to government activity, just not just related to the fact that this structure exists. So I think the combination of uh, those three reasons uh, created uh, a fact that Israel is a leading country in the world in terms of people getting vaccinated. Well, that's the first part of the equation. Now, the second part is, what the hell do you do with it? <laughs> uh, and that's where, uh, you know, I'm, of course, of an Israeli origin, and I love my country and so forth, but Israel has done prob- probably every possible mistake in uh, managing the situation and uh, uh, taking real advantage of the fact that a high percentage of the population is being vaccinated. Yes, okay. And um, now you have been vaccinated? Yes. Uh, yes. Actually, it's been like probably a month or a month and a half that I'm vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, and that was and the Pfizer, yeah. Pfizer vaccine? Two jabs. That was the Pfizer. Yeah, yeah. Two yeah. jabs was the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah. And you felt well. You felt well. 
You're feeling fine now? No problems, no yeah, reactions? I mean, I, I, I didn't have any side effects, but, you know, that's only one center. Uh -huh. uh, my wife uh, uh, had just a you know, small irritation for a few days, but nothing more than that. Uh, and, and as far as I could hear uh, from people around us and reading the papers and so forth, no real side effect has been reported. Okay. And since then, you know, now that um, so many um, people and a high percentage of the population in Israel have been vaccinated, have you felt a difference in how people are going about their working lives, their plans? Uh, what has changed since then? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's it's too early to call, but uh, I think from an individual perspective, uh, there is a little bit more of a relaxed feeling. Uh, you know, uh, if before that uh, you had to to wear masks, uh, like all of, all of the time, uh, but then we're talking about Israelis, which are... Uh, not all the time following the rules. <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually, the, uh, there is the general population, there are a few sectors which uh, are defying the rules uh, big time. But anyway, let's talk about the general population uh, who more or less kind of put the mask and uh, you know, be, behave as expected. Now it's a little bit, a little bit more relaxed. And um, so I think that's from an individual perspective. Uh, from the organizational perspective, Uh, in Israel, the problem is that there is no professional uh, task force uh, that is managing the situation. It's practically managed by the government. And there is the Corona cabinet uh, headed by the, uh, by the prime minister and a few ministers. And uh, it is bad as it sounds <laughs> uh, because it's a political organization. It's not a professional task force. And they sit for hours and they shout one on each other and uh, uh, pressure here and a pressure there. And uh, specific sectors who are represented by some politicians are pushing this direction and then to the other directions. And decisions are taken overnight without any preparation. There is no structured plan. Uh, so it's very difficult for the individual to get organized. I mean, okay, so uh, are they opening the school? Nobody knows. Uh, they're supposed to open on Sunday, but then it's only Saturday night we'll know if this is indeed the formal decision which was taken. Well, this is kind of one anecdote. So it's really uh, poorly managed. Uh, I'm sorry to say so, but it's really very poorly managed. Um, Israel is a country of startups and, you know, a, a breeding incubator for many innovations that are either born and bred in Israel or you have organizations from around the world that have um, subsidiaries in Israel to yeah. benefit from this innovation hub that exists there. How has it uh, been operating under this pandemic environment? Has that uh, hub uh, suffered? Because in a way, it has already operated long distance, even before the pandemic. But um, I'm assuming maybe business plans have changed, um, different priorities um, have come about due to the pandemic 
has it been helpful for innovators in Israel or has it hindered some of that innovation? Uh, it's a tough question, but, uh, you know, um, I, I think in general, uh, as you said, uh, Israel being an isolated location and being an innovation hub for many years, uh, the, you know, most Israeli startups, or at least kind of the serious startups, uh, and there are quite a few of them, um, they think about them as global from the very first day. Uh, they don't think, let's uh, build our business in the Israeli market and then uh, we prove it successful, then we'll go uh, to the US or to Europe or to Asia or whatever, because in many situations, uh, the, the market in Israel does not exist. Uh, I'll take uh, as an example, the automotive market. In Israel, there has never been any automotive market, neither a significant car manufacturer, Uh, nor even, uh, you know, a tier one or those that supply parts to the, to the car manufacturers and even tier two. Uh, Israel has or did not have any infrastructure at all. Uh, now in the, in the past, let's say seven years with the growth of uh, autonomous driving and uh, others, uh, Israel has become a kind of a strong uh, kingdom of, uh, of, um, Uh, startups in the automotive area. And there is a very strong uh, global community called Ecomotion that uh, attracts practically everyone in the automotive industry around the globe. And over the years, uh, quite a few uh, automotive uh, leaders, such as General Motors and Ford and uh, BMW and Volkswagen, Volvo and, and, and Hyundai and, and others that I don't remember right now, they all have a significant R&D or innovation activity in Israel. So uh, going back to your question, uh, Israeli startups are used to work uh, remotely. Uh, they're also used to fly, you know, uh, back and forth between Israel and all the other parts of the world, which has been, of course, significantly affected. But now everyone is in the same situation. So even, you know, people from Boston cannot really go to Santa Clara or other locations. So uh, it's the same situation. And Israelis, uh, for the reason that they are used to think about themselves as global and used to work as global, uh, also the sense of survival that I also already mentioned, uh, and the ability to quickly adopt to changes, uh, all those, I think, put... Uh, Israeli startup in a uh, better position than other places in the world or many other places in the world in how to handle the pandemic situation. Yeah. Um, have, we, have a lot of people lost their jobs in, in Israel during the pandemic? And, and is um, there a welfare system to, to support them? So uh, let's separate the answer between, let's say, for example, the high-tech and innovation sector and the regular economy. So on the high-tech sector, I, you know, uh, I don't think there was a significant impact. Uh, actually, if you take a look from a, a risk funding perspective, it's as strong as used to be, and maybe even uh, maybe even more. Uh, and startup with the right business model uh, 
continue to work and continue to hire. And uh, so, of course, you know, people are affected here and there and some startup, their business model is not viable anymore. Uh, but in general, uh, there's um, also a lot of new opportunities because of the pandemic. You know, it's a big problem and a big problem that needs solutions. So uh, definitely it created a lot of opportunities. As far as the regular economy, yes, definitely uh, highly impacted. A lot of people lost their job. All, not all, but many, many of the small businesses uh, are out of business. Uh, of course, the whole leisure economy, uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, uh, amusement parks uh, are, are out of work. You know, uh, school is on and off. Uh, so this impacts a lot of uh, working parents, which are, of course, the majority. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, a very significant impact. Now, uh, there is a strong uh, welfare system in Israel. Uh, uh, if you are if you're out of work, um, uh, you can get unemployment uh, benefits for some time. Uh, then, in the pandemic, uh, the period of time for unemployment support has been extended. Uh, there are some grants here and there. Uh, so, and, and there's a lot of uh, community help uh, trying to help uh, affected businesses, like you know, small shops that, uh, uh, for, for example, grocery supplies and so forth. That, uh, for example, I, I live in a small village, so you know, I live in a, in a semi-rural environment, and this is probably the time to mention that I, I was born and still live in Far Monash, which is named uh, after Sir John Monash. Uh, but so in this in this rural environment, you know, you go and buy directly from the farmer, uh, even if you don't have to, or even if it's a little bit more expensive. There's a lot of community help uh, trying to support uh, small businesses and affected people and, and families. I mean, let's talk about your expertise now. I mean, ex- explain to the listeners of this podcast what is um, innovation precincts and entrepreneurial ecosystems. Let's talk about how you landed in this space, and then we can go back to talk about the pandemic in sort of in line with that. I want to ask a few questions, but one, but okay. I want to first. Um, Uh, explain to the listeners what it means to be an expert in entrepreneurial ecosystems. Okay, so uh, in order to do that, maybe let me spend a few minutes on my personal uh, career track. Yes, please. And uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I, I'm of an Israeli origin. I grew up in Israel. Uh, you know, the typical, uh, uh, you know, career, you know, typical route of uh, going to high school. Finishing high school, going to the army, uh, I had the luck. Well, I don't know if it's luck, but uh, in, while in the uh, mandatory service, uh, going through uh, one major war, and then after this, uh, you go to school. So I, I studied computer science at the Technion, and the beginning of my career was a software engineer. Uh, but then I moved over to the other side of sales, marketing, product management, and general management. Now, all of my career has been global. So I've been with maybe five or six generations of startup companies, all of them Israelis, all of them aspire to be the global leader from the very first day. Uh, some of them extremely successful. 
some of them, as we say, mildly, slightly less successful. And uh, and then again, in, in, in this activity, uh, everything that I did was global. In that context, I lived and worked a few years in Paris. And then until recently, almost 20 years in the Boston area, always with a foot uh, still in my uh, uh, country of origin, Israel, and uh, basically working uh, across multiple ecosystems around the world. In the second part uh, of my career, I moved more to the macro level, to the ecosystem, primarily while being in Boston and uh, later uh, globally. So I was a member of uh, the team of the organization called Mass Challenge, which is uh, headquartered in Boston. It's probably the largest uh, startup accelerator in the world. Uh, and in that context, I was director of global partnerships for Mass Challenge, and I'm a co-founder of Mass Challenge Israel as a major private-public partnership uh, between government, corporations, and other. I'm also the co-founder of Mass Challenge in Switzerland, in Lausanne, and some other activities and partnership in France, primarily in the Lyon uh, area in France. And then I left Mass Challenge in 2016. And looking back, uh, I said, okay, so what is my profession? And uh, I concluded very, very quickly that I am an entrepreneurial ecosystem builder. Uh, I always worked in uh, entrepreneurship and innovation environment, but uh, basically, uh, at least from my vantage point, uh, entrepreneurship and innovation is not the objective. The objective, especially for uh, government universities and large corporations, is how to leverage innovation and entrepreneurship for business growth and economic growth. So that's what I do. I consult uh, those entities, large corporations, governments, and universities, uh, how to leverage entrepreneurship and innovation for the sake of economic and business growth. Uh, among my clients, uh, I can count, for example, Monash University in Australia. I mean, past and current clients. So I advise Monash University uh, in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, a company called Analog Devices, which is a major uh, sensors and IoT corporation headquartered in Boston. Uh, Johnson Matty, a chemical uh, corporation, uh, global corporation headquartered in the UK. Uh, another company is Ansel, which is actually uh, a public Australian company, but relatively little activity in Australia and global activity in the area of uh, uh, PPE or personal protective equipment for the workforce. Uh, so uh, that's what I do. And I always take the ecosystem approach. Now, ecosystem is a highly abused word. Uh, so uh, what I mean, uh, not only me, but I mean people who are also entrepreneurial ecosystem builder, we talk about the entrepreneurial ecosystem as something which is defined in a large metropolitan area, think Melbourne, for example, or the greater Melbourne area, and large meaning, let's say, population of uh, three to 10 million people. And uh, it could be also a small country like uh, Singapore, or Israel, or Hong Kong. Um, well, I hope I'm not stepping onto political because I'm calling this part of China. Or, uh, <laughs> so let's leave it aside for a second. Okay. Uh, so again, it's a large metropolitan area, uh, and it has five typical pillars. Uh, 
Number one is the entrepreneurs, startups and the supporting accelerators, incubators, everything else. Second one is risk capital and investors. Third one is universities and research institutions. Fourth one is government. And fifth one is large corporations. So uh, the ecosystem uh, theory, which has been developed in quite a few schools, I, while in Boston, I was exposed mostly to uh, what was developed by thought leaders from MIT Sloan Business School uh, and uh, others. Uh, but it's basically common practice uh, coming in other universities as well. And uh, the theory, I'm just trying to, uh, to make a very simple statement, is that every activity that you do and every program that you create uh, has to include all of those five elements. <clears throat> and when I say to include, it doesn't mean that they need to be present in every program. But when you design uh, the program, when you analyze the program, you have to relate to those elements. And it's okay to say one of those elements is not relevant, but it has to be uh, planned rather than an afterthought or neglection. Because if it has relevance and is not being taken into account, then it becomes the weakest link and kind of drags the whole program down. Uh, and so that's that's basically kind of the uh, the uh, ecosystem uh, approach, and um, I think the another way to look at uh, ecosystem activity, you can categorize it in different ways. One one way that I like to categorize it is between, uh, let's say, regular impact program and high impact program. Uh, if let's say you are a government. And you think about uh, the ecosystem as trying, you're trying to take the ecosystem up a notch or up to the next level and uh, uh, strengthen the ecosystem and so forth. So there are ecosystem programs that are, let's say, regular impact. What they do is basically a maintenance activity. So, you know, they support entrepreneurs, provide funding here and there, uh, some training, some courses, some, and everything is good. I'm not against it, uh, but the, uh, they are maintenance program. What my profession and what I'm trying to do, I'm not all the time successful, but at least that's what I'm trying, is to design a high-impact program. What is a high-impact program? It's something that changes the zero-sum game and, and has the potential to put the ecosystem uh, in the next level, take it to the next higher level without uh, dropping down if the program stops. So uh, that's basically a high-impact program. And that's very, very challenging. Uh, uh, take a look at uh, you know, all countries in the world are, uh, would like uh, foreign investment into the country. So there is an entity called Invest in Country X, invest in Israel, invest in Victoria, invest in Switzerland. Uh, the names might be a little bit different, but the purpose is pretty much very much the same, how to attract uh, foreign capital and foreign corporations to uh, be present in your home country. But if every country has exactly the same agency and everyone wants exactly the same, it's a zero-sum game. So how do you change it? So. Uh, uh, if you design a high-impact program uh, with the right elements of uh, sector focus, 
critical mass, global connectivity, and so forth, uh, then you have a chance uh, to create a high impact uh, program that can take the ecosystem to the next level. This is fascinating, and I I think that the listeners will um, see how much sense this makes, but they will also see how little of this we see in the corporate sector or any sector really uh, in Australia and overseas because the ecosystem requires a mentality and a coordination that takes you above and beyond the organization that you are employed by and you as a consultant as well when you come in and you support either you know a, a, a government uh, client or a corporate client or a higher education client that also requires that mentality to be developed and that those bridges and links to be developed um, what would you advise uh, a listener who is interested in starting um, to work in that way to do next? What would be the first step for an organization and, and a decision maker in an organization to start working in that way? Yeah, yeah. Of course, they can just call me. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think from my experience, uh, yes, it has a lot to do with culture. And uh, everyone talks about innovation and entrepreneurship uh, and uh, things are being done in large organization. But, you know, large organization is a big ship. You know, uh, you need a lot of power uh, to change direction. Uh, and it has a lot to do with organizational culture uh, and uh, a real effort trying to change things. But you have to start somewhere. So... Um, If you are in a large organization, whether it's a government entity or a large corporation and so forth, I would say you need to start with two things. Uh, or actually, you know, it actually starts with people uh, because uh, by the end of the day, it's all about people. If you want to change something and design a high impact program uh, for your organization, uh, but also for others in the ecosystem, Uh, you need to make sure that there are two people uh, in the two right people in the organization. Uh, the first one is uh, the top manager of the organization, uh, whether it's the CEO or the president or the chairman uh, or, or different names in the universities, but really number one uh, in the organization, the one that uh, really leads the organization, uh, he or she uh, needs to have a true vision uh, and recognize the need to change direction in the world of, uh, of uh, innovation. They might not know how, how to do it or what is the right practice or uh, what is the right quantitative measures and KPI to do, but it should be deep in their heart and soul that uh, uh, the vision has to include uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, the willingness to look outside, the willingness to uh, take a bottom-up approach in, in parallel to a top-down approach, <clears throat> uh, the ability of the external ecosystem to change the culture of the organization, and the, the, the recognition that innovation and entrepreneurship and other elements are as important to having the right product, products, the right markets, and so forth. 
So again, person number one, the top leader of the organization that must have uh, uh, the right vision and the right passion. Number two uh, is the champion. Now the champion uh, probably should be or could be uh, middle-level manager or probably not middle-level, but a senior executive, not the top person, but a senior executive that uh, know how to drive the organization. And again, he or she are extremely passionate. Now, they know what they're talking about. They know what what it takes to drive innovation in the organization. Uh, they can uh, differentiate between good programs and bad programs. Uh, they know how to mix it uh, with the organization, uh, take a different approach. They know how to do it. Of course, they are, they, they are using uh, external help and uh, uh, they read the right articles and so forth, but they are the champions. They are the ones that uh, take a risk within the organization uh, to drive innovation, to drive entrepreneurship. Uh, they put quantitative uh, measures and they do all, the, all they can do, and more than that, in order to lead that change with an outstanding support uh, from the top person, from person number one. So again, two people, start with that. The top person in the organization and the champion. Now, I mean, with all of that expertise and looking and observing what has happened for the past 12 months uh, in how countries have managed the pandemic i'm assuming you're watching and you're thinking about how your expertise and the things you know could have um improved some of the responses how can the the how can we develop better responses in the future using the sort of skills that you have learned in terms of the global connectivity, these um, entrepreneurial ecosystems and these pillars that are the foundation of that? Yeah. How can it could be done better in the future? Okay. First of all, uh, you know, this is the uh, $60 trillion questions. I, I wish I had a good answer. But I, I can kind of maybe you know, develop the conversation around that. But first of all, you know, in order to develop a good plan, uh, you need to have good supporting data, for example. Uh, and to me personally, actually, the whole pandemic, you know, I, I've been working uh, with a lot of startups and probably 60 or 70 percent of them have some element of big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning in the program. And, you know, uh, we've lived so far, maybe still we do, in a world that... Uh, you don't need to program anymore, just the data is the program and uh, uh, just use the right algorithms and put artificial intelligence and everything will be great. Now, observing about the past year or so of the uh, pandemic evolution, if there is one thing that there is no lack of, it's big data. Uh, you can have all the data in the world uh, anywhere from every direction and so forth. By the way, going back to the beginning of the conversation, Kupat uh, Cholim, which is the largest HMO uh, in Israel, Kupat Cholim Kleleit, that's the Hebrew name, uh, they just released uh, a, um, 
an article in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, they have done a research uh, of 1.2 million people in Israel. Half of them vaccinated and half of them were not vaccinated. And uh, this was an, a breakthrough research, uh, first, definitely the first one, uh, that uh, uh, has shown the efficacy big time of the Pfizer vaccination. So okay, I'm going to put the link of, for, to that in the bio so that people can read it if they want to. Yeah, yeah, okay. great. Um, now, going back to the big data, you could assume that with all the developments and all the capabilities and skills of big startups, they, can, they could derive until this point from the big data very strong and non-debatable practices of how to deal with the pandemic, just based on the big data and the right algorithms. I haven't seen anything so far. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, suggestions, but they cover the whole scope and uh, like dozens of solutions and directions, but nothing that stood out, out of the big data. So that's number one observation. I'm really, you know, personally disappointed by how big data and machine learning could not help us so far. Uh, leaving that aside, uh, maybe we can learn from uh, some government actions and some specific countries how things should be done. I don't think we're in this situation. Uh, you can get bits and pieces. Yes, Israel has been great in getting a large part of the population vaccinated, but they just blew it. They're not taking advantage of it. Uh, for example, Israel has closed its border. And right now, uh, uh, the entry out into Israel, even if Israeli citizens is blocked and you have to apply for a political uh, a committee, that will allow you, if they wish, to come back into Israel, even if you live in Israel, which is, I think, uh, kind of a draconian uh, measure that should not be taken because, to the best of my knowledge, most, if not all countries, uh, uh, are allowing their citizens to come back. Yes, I mean, there is a limited number of, of flights and quarantine and everything else, but no one is blocking the entry. Also, if you want to go out of Israel, uh, so foreign citizens, uh, they are not allowed into Israel, but they are allowed to go out because, you know, the government don't want to. But Israeli citizens that want to go out, again, to ask for permission from that same political committee and have to explain uh, why they want. I think this is a dictatorial move in Israel, which is by all means a very strong democracy. So... Uh, Again, Israel struggling vaccination, uh, ill-managing uh, the situation in general. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, for example, are extremely good, uh, as far as I can judge remotely, in containing the pandemic and having a very low number of uh, deaths and otherwise. But uh, just what I read in the news recently, there was one case in Auckland in New Zealand, and then uh, there was a complete quarantine for a week. Is that the right move? I don't know. So people all across uh, the world are trying to find the right balance between containing the pandemic from uh, an uh, epidemiologic perspective and continuing life as it is. Now, there are, of course, no mutation here and mutation there. 
And <clears throat> but the mutations are going to be with us forever. So I think this is a real test of good government, uh, how to um, how to really manage the situation. And here I go back to my experience. Uh, if I, if I leave the pandemic outside and I go to what I described before, how do you create a high impact program? Uh, how do you change the zero sum game? So, for example, let's say, uh, the state of Victoria, uh, want to be, uh, the, uh, leader, uh, in, um, uh, let's say, uh, some part of biotech where, where Melbourne is, uh, you know, the University of Melbourne and Monash University and others are very strong. Okay. So, uh, let's say brain research. Victoria wants to be the leader in brain research. So it cannot go outside to the world and say, okay, I'm the leader in brain research. I have strong universities, which is true, but there are at least the world. Uh, closer to the US, closer to Europe, Europe that are very strong in biotech as well. So why Australia? The global connectivity. Uh, you have to take it from a competitive perspective. How do you, uh, so instead of thinking about how to put Victoria in a global leadership, try to think about a small global network of, just for example, Victoria, Israel, Boston, Switzerland, just, I'm not sure if those are the right members, but let's create uh, a small global network with a leadership in brain research. By the way, there is uh, um, some efforts which is taking place in uh, regenerative medicine, which uh, actually uh, uh University and uh, other parts, uh, other research organizations in Australia are, are participating. Yes. But I, I think maybe it's not reached yet uh, at the level which was supposed to be. It could take mm-hmm. some time. But again, the, con- the, the concept which I'm uh, preaching, uh, not in the pandemic situation, but in general uh, uh, ecosystem building, is create a small global network uh, that can differentiate itself from all the others. So I think uh, trying to draw an analogy for uh, the pandemic containment situation and how to find the right balance uh, between the uh, epidemiology perspective and continuation of life perspective, uh, how to manage the situation in a professional and non-political uh, manner, how to take advantage of the vaccines which is taking place. Uh, let's create a network uh, of a few countries that each one of them has some leadership in some perspective and can complement each other. Uh, and if you create this and you could create in a relatively short time frame uh, a gold standard of how to manage the situation, how to take all the consideration, uh, how to take all the elements into consideration and come out with a strong position that will be the, uh, the, the light for all the other countries to follow. Just exactly as there was a coordinated effort in developing the vaccine, in, in, you know, in a pace that is an order of magnitude uh, larger than everything we knew so far. It actually presents a huge opportunity uh, for containing the flu, for containing uh, other uh, illnesses and so forth. Again, I'm not an expert, but I mean, I mean do you, do you Are you often um, confronted with um, 
an opposite reaction to that where companies or governments feel like they're always in competition with each other and they are reluctant in taking up an alliance like you're proposing. I feel like it's almost instinctive at times that people or organization will, will not take up on that because they they have this um, competitive nature in them instead of an, a collaborative nature in them. Am I right or am I just reading yeah. into it too much? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right <clears throat> because, uh, again, uh, governments are led by politicians, right? Uh, elected politicians. And it's very easy to, you know, if you create kind of a global network. Uh, so part of uh, the uh, Victorian taxpayer is going to Switzerland. Of course, it's also in the opposite direction, but that's something which is very, very difficult to explain uh, to uh, to the press, uh, to the taxpayers and so forth. It's not a popular uh uh, it's not a popular act for politicians and it's counterintuitive. So I'm going back to uh, the, same, <laughs> the same thing that I mentioned before. You need a strong visionary in the top, like the prime minister, and you need a champion that could come from any one of those pillars. It could be from a leading university, it could be from a leading corporation, it could be maybe from... Uh, other, you know, you need a champion, but it can be done. I believe, of course, it's my strong opinion. I am highly opinionated. It's what I think, and <laughs> I'm sure there are other opinions. Uh, I'm preaching this perspective. Create a small global network that, uh, with a few locations uh, that could complement each other, and in a very short time, create a gold standard that others could follow. Uh, it, it, this is a completely um, out-of-the-box analogy, but um, I hope you can uh, relate to what I'm going to say, and then we can um, um, end this this uh, catch-up now uh, in this sort of interesting note. Yesterday, I was um, doing my group coaching program with some uh, of my clients, and I explained to them that I was watching a documentary about Steven Spielberg. And in this documentary, which I'll link uh, in the show notes as well, it showed all of his friends, all of his director friends, and they were all extremely, extremely successful, just like him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they were all successful, you see. I think it's because of that alliance that they all helped each other to the top. Instead of competing against each other for uh, assignments and, and productions, they were always helping each other out and making sure that even if Steven Spielberg was going through a rough patch, uh, George Lucas would come to the rescue and support one of his production and vice versa. They were always helping each other. And they were about, I don't remember all of the names. I'm not a, yeah. a, a, a movie expert, but they were about six or seven of them and they were all very um, helpful to each other's careers. And it just goes to show how important 
uh, an alliance is, be it an alumni, a group of people, friends, uh, a group of organizations, or an entrepreneurial ecosystem like the one that you're proposing. Um, I, I think that that goes to show that it can actually be much more fruitful uh, in the long term than you trying to always be in competition with others. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's, uh, I would definitely agree with what you say about the strengths and the importance of the network. Um, and, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in the business world, there is a word uh, which is often used and it's called competition. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, if you are in a specific market and uh, uh, you have, you know, you're a business entity and you're competing with others, you want that the customer will buy your products, not the other one's products. Uh, but uh, in, in, even in, in, whether it's large corporation, small corporation, even you're, if you're competing, you're competing, let's say, in 80% of your product line, but you find opportunities that are best for you to join forces. Uh, so the word competition is quite, uh, quite, uh, quite uh, uh, typical. Of course, people are very competitive in nature, and there's a very sense of comp competition. But uh, you need to find a way how to partner, uh, and uh, you need to recognize that this is mutually beneficial. Oh, well, you know what, my friend? I think Israel needs to open its borders soon because... What the pandemic has done with people is that uh, reinforced the need to have a bucket list. And it's definitely in my bucket list to come and visit Israel one day. So I hope that the <laughs> very uh, speedy vaccination changes uh, the way that they operate in Australia because our borders are closed as well, so just so you know. Um, and that I get to see you, you know, in the near future or you come to Australia back again yeah, to see definitely come to, uh, I already miss Melbourne and the people there big time <laughs> oh great so I hope to see you soon I'll keep an eye on the borders and as soon as they open I'll let you know but they're closed let me tell you things <laughs> here are still very very strict okay yeah thank, I'm... thank you so much thank you thank so you, much Renata. for your 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 insight and we are all here in Australia very curious about what's happening in Israel so I can't wait to um, uh, release the podcast in a few days and let everybody know about your thoughts and ideas I'm sure lots of people will appreciate your your very opinionated opinions <laughs> great Renata uh, again uh, as always great talking to you uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, all the best to you and to everyone listening I hope you enjoyed this interesting insight into what most of us in Australia, in the US and around the world can learn, expect and maybe potentially do better as we roll out our COVID vaccination plans in the near future. I hope you also learned something new from Amir's expertise in entrepreneurialism that can most definitely be applied in any sector. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a thumbs up wherever you have found us. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And you know, you can also subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to the episode show notes and I'll have a link there for you to subscribe. And I will send you a newsletter every week with a new episode of the Job Hunting Podcast, plus some extra information to help your 
your career and professional development. Or you can find us and subscribe on my website. It's www.renatabernardi.com, R-E-N-A-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-E.com. See you next time.